Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Chris Fabricant, the Innocence Project's Director of Strategic Litigation and author of the new book, Junk Science in the American Criminal Justice System. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Trevor. I'd like to start with a story you tell in the middle of the book, uh, which you describe as the first significant meeting you intended after joining the Innocence Project in 2012. what was this meeting and, and why was it going on at that time? It was an astonishing meeting that was long, long overdue. And um, as what I learned at that moment was that um, hair microscopy or microscopic hair comparison evidence, which is a form of forensic sciences that have been used for at least a century in criminal courts, had been a contributing factor to at least on that day in 2012, at least 70 known wrongful convictions, 70, seven zero. And it was still in use in criminal trials and to some extent still is today. But at that time, um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, um, and the FBI had come to the Innocence Project and seeking our help for an audit of all cases that involved the use of hair microscopy in a criminal trial in which FBI agents had testified. And the reason that that meeting had occurred was because there had been three wrongful convictions that I write about in the book um, of three black men, um, all falsely convicted of assaults of white women. And hair microscopy had played a central role in all three cases that all three cases involved different experts from the FBI crime lab, so they couldn't make a bad apples argument. It was bad science, not a bad uh, examiner. And hair microscopy was central to each conviction. And a Washington Post reporter named Spencer Sue had begun to relentlessly chronicle the odysseys of these three men who, in the aggregate, had spent more than a century of wrongful imprisonment um, based on this junk science. So, you know, what I, when I came to the Innocence Project, you know, I was tasked with um, beginning the strategic litigation department and addressing the use of junk science in American criminal courts. And, you know, as I say in the book, it was really the timing was unbelievable because I was sitting there suddenly and there was a general counsel of the FBI and there was a former inspector general from the Department of Justice and there was Peter Neufeld and there was Andrew Weissman and Norm Reamer, the head of uh, the NACDL. And suddenly, you know, we had an admission from the most important forensic science laboratory in the world that this evidence that they had been touting for 100 years, you know, was junk. And, you know, that was an incredible eye-opener for me and really the uh, the beginning of my work in forensics. So let's lay that, just the general, lay it out on the table in terms of the kind of forensics we're talking about. Uh, And when you say junk, it's not... That, as you pointed out, it's not just that someone can be particularly bad at hair matching or uh, matching tire prints or something like this. It's that it is not even science in any meaningful sense of the word. But what 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 is that category of these just generally junk forensic sciences? Yeah, I wanted to be really careful about the way that I define junk science, you know, because it's a pejorative term. Certainly forensic experts balk at the use of that language and, you know, certainly when you're talking about a technique that they use. And the way that I define it in the book is subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence and that there's no empirical basis for the opinion that's being proffered to a jury as expert witness testimony or so-called scientific evidence. And most of what these uh, techniques are, are largely based on training and experience, and that these techniques are really controlled by what amount to guilds, like old-fashioned labor guilds, and that they're really based on um, the received wisdom from sometimes many generations of forensic practitioners and those that are most highly respected in their fields. And that kind of wisdom is passed down from mentor to mentee for generations, you know, medicine used to be like this and um you know some parallels that i that i draw in the book between you know the pivot from evidence-based decision making in medicine and how hard that was when you had you know doctors who were really resistant to the notion that you know this esteemed you know teacher that they had that they learned you know some of it was valid science and some of it was nonsense until we really had mainstream scientists taking a look at 
medicine and medical decision making and realizing that some of this was nonsense, right? Because it hadn't really been researched in, you know, randomized controlled studies. It was just wasn't being done, you know, and we still have that today in forensics, you know. So when I call something junk science, I'm not talking about evidence that and evidentiary techniques that have been developed in laboratories and been subjected to the rigors of the scientific method. I'm talking about stuff that's invented at crime scenes and kind of leaks into criminal courts. And then it's nearly impossible to get out of criminal courts because I spent a lot of time trying to do just that. So CSI lied to us. Is, is oh, yeah. No, people got to recognize that CSI <laughs> is fiction, right? You know what I mean? And, and not only that, but the nonfiction shows will lie to you too, like forensic files, right? I have two clients that were on forensic files, both of whom depicted as obviously guilty, both of whom innocent, right? Alfred Swinton, Connecticut, it's a bite mark case. You know, I took that case after seeing him on forensic files and he was being depicted as a serial killer and trying to put like five, six bodies on him. And they were like touting, oh, thank God for the bite mark evidence. We wouldn't have gotten this killer off the streets. And he looked innocent just from the show, from watching the show, right? And so 18 months later, he was exonerated. So yeah, don't believe what you see on television. Absolutely. Retain your skepticism. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I watched those shows a little bit uh when, when I was a teenager and then as I became more libertarian, they're just way too pro cop and they're too pro prosecution. But, uh, but it did even strike me then that I was for bite mark, for example, which of course features a lot in a lot of these fictional and, and non-fictional shows. I don't think that I could like, let's take a piece of really firm cheesecake. Yeah. And I bite into it very cleanly. Uh, and I give it to one of these experts, uh, and they know that we try and give them, you know, give them 10 different molds of our teeth and see if they can match up who took a bite out. And this is assuming the cheesecake holds its form. I doubt that, that that just seems exceptionally strange that that could work. One people's teeth are probably not that unique. Uh, two, there's probably not that much information in the cheesecake or say a piece of fried chicken. So it always struck me as odd, but there was just a lot of credulity about just saying, Oh, this is, this is definitely science. And the human body is like a piece of cheesecake or something. And, it's like every criminal's biting. That, that's the one that gets me. There's just how many criminals are biting their victims? A lot, apparently, according to some people. Right. I, you know, my, I hope that my body is not like cheesecake. I, um, but, but I'm, the problem, um, a few things that, that you raised there, which are of interest, you know, I mean, is, is that one is that almost none of them are in, you know, substrates like cheesecake. They're in human skin, and human skin is constantly changing, you know what I mean? And so you could have somebody that, so-called matches a bike mark one hour and not the next hour because of a decomposition of a body or the healing in a live victim, which, you know, right there, you know, full stop, you should never use this technique because the, it's always documented sometime after the injury was inflicted. We don't know what the position the body was in when it was inflicted. And we don't know how much it's changed, you know? So there are no other forensic techniques that the substrate is constantly changing like that. If you were to put it in some more of a stable substrate and did it the way that you did, you wouldn't really need an expert. So you could say, well, maybe this person could be included as a potential biter. You know what I mean? Or there are like, you know, dentists are always telling me that, oh, what about somebody who has no teeth and somebody that does, you know, couldn't we just say something? I would say, you don't need an expert witness for that. Anybody could eyeball that and say, yeah, that mark, you know, doesn't look like this person had any teeth. But the reality is though, and what we see and what's really dangerous about this and many of these other speculative techniques is that it can be interpreted as anything you want it to be interpreted. You know, that's the beauty of junk science is that whatever theory you have can be advanced through the use of this evidence. And so when you see an injury on a human body, it's always these diffuse bruises that it's kind of like interpreting a cloud formation, right? You know, as I say, Trevor, hey, look up at the sky there. You see that that cloud? Doesn't that look like a bunny rabbit? You can maybe not be thinking about bunny rabbit at all, but you look at it and you can see what I see and you're, oh yeah, you know, that does look like a bunny rabbit, right? You know, and then you can't unsee it. That's exactly the way that bite marks, you know, but I'm telling you that I'm a cloud expert and I'm an expert in bunny rabbits and say that is a bunny rabbit and I'm the expert and the judge has called me an expert and given me that imprimatur in front of the jury and they've laid out my curriculum vitae, which is 20 plus pages long. And these junk scientists have, you know, CVs that are longer than, you know, any of your, your average experts. You're going to believe that, right? Interestingly, what you pointed out that with my cheesecake example, or where an individual person could look at it and say this matches or doesn't match, or a jury could, could do it that way. That's kind of how the original 
bite mark case was so the, the 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 how we got into this lineage starting in the 70s and well you mentioned and ted bundy of course too but it, it was about saying well the jurors can look at this not so much the experts correct yeah you know the so many um shaky or just plain old junk science techniques get into criminal trials with that rationale and that they'll point to the statutory scheme that they're supposed to consider before they use scientific evidence and say, well, this is supposed to be liberally uh, allow expert witness testimony, and we will rely on jurors to um, determine the facts, and that, and we rely on jurors to use their common sense, and that's the basis of our jury trial system in the United States. And that sounds great until you're talking about so-called scientific evidence, because there is widespread scientific illiteracy in this country, and that includes lawyers, maybe even especially lawyers, right? You know what I mean? And so defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges, lay jurors, you have everybody in the courtroom is essentially scientifically illiterate. You have one expert on the stand who's been called an expert by the court and saying that this defendant is probably guilty. And most of the jurors already believe that, as does the judge and certainly the prosecutor. You have two strikes against them, and that is going to be a magic bullet for a conviction under those circumstances. And so, yeah, the bite mark, the original bite mark case, you know, and the reason that I tracked you know, bite mark evidence apart from, you know, the the three clients' stories that I focus on in the case to tell this story is that you could really pinpoint its actual origin, the first case, and you could demonstrate through the use of bite mark evidence, really the story of junk science in this country, how it was invented, how it's been used, and how the efforts to reform the system have failed. And the reasoning that they used in the first bite mark case is exactly what you're talking about, is that they said that, well, and it was also in a different substrate, it was on cartilage on a nose, right, which is a little bit different than skin, it's much more stable, and that they had this, uh, like a lot of these junk science cases, there's only circumstantial evidence, there's no hard evidence connecting the suspect to the crime. And so usually there's good reason to believe that this suspect is, you know, you know potentially guilty, but they don't have any evidence and they need something, you know, sciencey to put in front of a jury, you know, and so like a broken clock that's right twice a day, you know, sometimes junk science will get it right, sometimes they'll get it wrong. In the bite mark case, the this guy Walter Marks, you know, was uh, uh, leasing his uh, bedroom from a landlady named Lovey Bozensky. And he um, was in the house when she was alive, and then she turned up really brutally murdered the next day, and he decided not to spend the night in the house that he was renting. So there was reason to believe that, you know, he you know, was certainly a good suspect for it. And so the judge decided that, um, but bite mark evidence had never been used before, and this enterprising prosecutor decided that he was going to see if he could get a... Uh, um, some dentists to match this uh, the suspect's teeth to this injury on the woman's nose. And the judge, in a published decision, said that, you know, they're admitted out loud that there had never been any scientific research, no orderly experimentation, that um, it didn't meet any of the kind of basic thresholds for the use of scientific evidence in criminal trials, but it didn't matter because this was so elemental and such easy stuff that he could see with his own eyes, you know, whether or not this matched and jurors would would be the same, right? They weren't going to be hoodwinked by some whiz-bang technology or black box technology. They just have to take an expert's word for it. They could be able to suss out sense from nonsense on their own. And that reasoning was adopted for bite marks, led to over 35 wrongful convictions and indictments, only the ones that we're aware of. But not just that. That same reasoning was used for the use of, and the introduction of all kinds of pattern matching techniques that are based on a lot of speculation, hair microscopy, firearms and tool mark evidence, to, uh, footwear impression evidence, all these other techniques where this idea is, is that you rely on jurors, not on scientists, to separate real science from fake science. And what that has led to is thousands of years of wrongful incarceration. And you keep pointing out that we know about because if you really see how rotten this is in addition to every other rotten part of the criminal justice system like lack of defense attorneys for example uh and you know the 
Lord's work that you guys do at the Innocence Project, you can only do so much in trying to figure out when, when you have destroyed records and you have uh, inmates who maybe have passed away and so they're not writing you letters. I mean, you can assume that there are many, 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 many wrongful convictions out there. Oh, my God. You know, we have 2.3 million people in various forms of incarceration in this country, right? And if you say, you know, even 1% have been wrongfully convicted, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of people, right? And if you're talking about, you know, if you include all of, you know, the victims of the drug war, then you're talking about millions and millions of people, right? And then you're talking about, you know, a system that's really been turned on its head. And there's plenty of junk science used in the drug war, too. All the presumptive drug tests that are out there that are subjective interpretations of color bars on the side of the road by some police officer who already believes this defendant is guilty. Then people get arrested and they go to jail and they have to plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit based on junk science, right? So, you know, I focus on, you know, uh, many techniques in the book, you know what I mean? But there are many others that, you know, you could write a whole other book just on, you know, pick out another technique. Let's get into some of the stories. Um, Stephen Cheney, uh, his, how did he get uh, convicted originally? So what, you know, Stephen Cheney is, uh, was my first client at the Innocence Project. I write about meeting him uh, for the first time and what an emotional experience that was as somebody that had been a public defender for my entire career before then. Um, and I include the time that I was a clinical law professor because my clinic was a defense clinic. The uh, Stephen Cheney um, in the um, mid '80s was um, like a lot of people in Texas and elsewhere at that time was a cocaine user. He was a construction worker, and he spent time with um, John and Sally Sweek, both of whom were drug dealers, a young married couple in their early twenties that were dealing cocaine out of their apartment in suburban Dallas. Um, they were pretty casual about their drug sales. They just kept an IAU list. They fronted a lot of people, a lot of drugs, and, um, they weren't very running a very tight ship. They were partying a lot themselves and that it was just kind of, you know, wasn't the, uh, kind of operation that you would think of, you know, uh, when you think about big time drug dealers, but, you know, they, um, but it's still a very dangerous profession because, um, you know, you had to buy from wholesalers, right. And, um, what happened was, um, that John and Sally Sweek were murdered and brutally butchered on the floor of their kitchen. They were each stabbed over 18 times. They had their throats cut to the bone and, um, left dead in their own kitchen. There were no eyewitnesses. There were fingerprints everywhere, but who's to associate these with? We don't know. Some of them were bloody. Some of them were not. There was um, bloody footprints leading away from the bodies in the kitchen, uh, extending across the carpet, um, this shag brown carpet in um, to the living room where you could see the trail leading to where the killers probably looked out the window to see if um, there were any witnesses. Um, there was no photographs of the, of the bathroom where they probably cleaned up. There were no drugs or money found in the house, probably because they were ripped off. And um, they were not discovered until some other friends of theirs, um, who had also been um, customers of the Sweeks, found their bodies um, uh, late one Saturday night. And so they had been dead for anywhere, you know, the window was about six, seven hours, but sometime during that day they had been murdered. So there was a, uh, a good suspect, um, good in terms of like somebody that seems like potentially could have been involved in this because this guy named Juan, Juan Gonzalez had been an alleged member of the so-called Mexican mafia and had had two prior convictions of drug trafficking and had previously threatened the Sweeks um, because the Sweeks owed him money. And there was a previous threat against their life a couple of years before where they had fallen behind from their dealers before. So he became initially the chief suspect and they, he was on parole and the Dallas Police Department, the Homicide Division started focusing on him until they got a call from one of Stephen Cheney's friends from the so-called friend at the construction site with a tip. And what he claimed was that Stephen Cheney owed the Sweeks $500, or he was back and forth on the amount, but at one point he said $500, and that he decided that that was uh, Mr. Cheney's motive to murder these two people, to clear a drug debt. And suddenly the police investigation pivots away from Juan Gonzalez. He gets uh, Stephen Cheney's fingerprints. 
He runs uh, them against um, some of the prints that were found in the apartment. He finds uh, Stephen Cheney's thumbprint not too far from the body. Not bloody, which is an important fact, because he'd spent lots of time at this week's apartment, so finding his fingerprints was not particularly surprising. And he gets arrested. He gets interrogated. Uh, he denies it all. They seize his shoes, and they let him go. And then he gets rearrested when a um, they do a presumptive blood test on his sneakers, and they claim that there was a positive test. And then there was this U-shaped injury on John Sweek's forearm. And there's a picture in my book of this injury in the photo insert, right? And initially, before they had Stephen Taney as a suspect, and you see this in a lot of wrongful conviction cases, they had decided, one, that a forensic dentist had decided that this is a bite mark. If you look at the injury, you know, it doesn't look like a bite mark to me. And I've seen a whole hell of a lot of them, as you can imagine, right? And the um, good and bad. And um, that it was inflicted a couple of days before the murder, which was important, right? And then they found Stephen Cheney as a suspect. And what they had was this bite mark and this fingerprint and this alleged motive. And they had a forensic dentist. And what we've talked about before is that junk science can tell any story you needed to tell. And so this story started to change. And what the first was is that they took a mold of Stephen Cheney's teeth. They uh, compared it to this alleged bite mark and said it was consistent with it. By the time we get to trial, when they started painting the bullseye around Stephen Cheney, the target, that injury wasn't consistent with. It was one million to one chance that anybody other than Stephen Cheney had made that bite mark. And... Not, it wasn't a couple of days before the murder where it wouldn't have been that relevant, you know, to, but it was at the time. It was inflicted at the time of the murder. And that piece of junk science was enough to overcome nine alibi witnesses that Stephen Cheney had put on the witness stand. Stephen Cheney had never had, apart from two misdemeanor marijuana convictions, and he was 28 years old at the time, had never been in trouble like that. No evidence of a like, you know a violent behavior or anything like that. He was a small time cocaine user and had been fully employed as a construction worker his entire adult life. So he was convicted. He was sentenced to life in prison, and went away and was in prison in outside in Huntsville, uh, Texas for the next 27 years. And when we started the strategic litigation department at the Innocence Project, you know, we have been known for, of course, DNA exonerations for, you know, the first 30 years of our, well, first 20, I should say, really, this is our 30th anniversary, but the first 20 years of our work, you know, it had always been DNA exoneration. So that was the only intake criteria, right? So if you could find and test biological evidence. And if that proved innocence, didn't matter if there were 10 eyewitnesses or a confession or whatever, we would take those cases. And that's why we know people falsely confess. That's why we know eyewitness identification is not reliable. And that's why we know bite marks and many other forensic techniques are junk science. So we decided that we were going to look for people that were convicted on junk science. And in particular, we're going to look for bite mark cases, amongst others. I did a bunch of hair microscopy and arson and shaken baby and you know other forms, but bite marks was certainly our focus. And I put a call out to the defense bar, and a woman in Texas named a public defender there named Julie Doucette. Um, had contacted me and said, you know, I have a case here in Texas where the testimony at trial was there was a million to one anybody else had made this mark. So I said, that's a case that we need to take. And, you know, a few years later, you know, I mean, and you've read the to the end of the book, so I don't want to give away the end to end, but, you know, Stephen Cheney's odyssey was far from over at that point, but we took on his case and eventually he was released. Um, but more troubles ensued after that. But the... Um, it was a really important case. It was the first time that any court in the United States had favorably cited the 2009 National Academy of Sciences report on the state of forensic sciences. And it was, um, you know, it just demonstrated that evidence that's been accepted by criminal trials since, you know, the Walter Marks case that we talked about earlier, and really then Ted Bundy after that, that really shoved it into the mainstream. It was the first time that, you know, a court had in this area looked back and said, you know what? Maybe we were wrong about this. This is a big deal. And it's when you took it over when you got his case that there was a, a shakeup starting 
in the in the bite mark world and and you kind of mentioned the guilds aspect of this because there's a there's there's a lot of interested players in the criminal justice system of course you know you have police and police unions and prisons and prison guard unions and prosecutors but we created amongst all these different forensic matching organizations these kind of guilds that got pretty good at circling their own wagons uh, to try and defend themselves uh, against what was a National Academy of Sciences report that pretty definitively said this stuff is not science, but that, of course, prosecutors don't like that, cops don't like that, and wagons start circling, and, and you, pr- you probably get hate mail from these people, I assume. <laughs> yeah, I I'm certainly am not popular you know, with uh, certain of these guilds. I am... Um... You know, it was, and I had a much longer section on this uh, in the book, and it, it got cut a little bit. But the, um, you know, the scientific dissent is really not tolerated in forensics. You know, I mean, and this is not like mainstream science where you have, you know, transparency and scientists are used to being criticized by their colleagues. They're used to having their theories tested. They're used to having um, other scientists attempting to falsify their hypotheses. That's science, right? That's the way it goes. You know what I mean? And they have thick skin, you know what I mean? Or they should, you know what I mean? Because you know, that's how mankind has developed, you know, our knowledge base, you know, in the world through the scientific method. It's not by, you know, developing a guild and protecting your enterprise, you know, I mean, so there's, you know, there's financial aspects of it, there are ego aspects of it. It's very hard to a, you know, somebody that's been declared an expert witness from coast to coast that's testified as an expert that's put people in, in prison and on death row to come around and admit they were wrong. And when you have colleagues that are suddenly questioning, you know, the basis of the enterprise, that's really not tolerated. And we've seen it in field after field. You know, I write about the attacks on Mike Bowers. It's one of the original American Board of Forensic Odontology, when we're not the original, but an early member of the, you know, the so-called, or it's not so-called, it is called the American Board of Forensic Odontology. And he was the first dissenting expert in that field. And really, when we at the Innocence Project really started like focusing on bite mark evidence, he was viewed more and more as a problem for them. And so they um, ginned up this bogus ethics complaint, and you know we here helped organize his defense. And you know we've estimated that the amount of pro bono representation from two big law firms um, and me. Um, was, you know, around, you know, three quarters of a million dollars that was spent on, you know, and that was just because, you know, Mike Bowers was able to generate pro bono representation. You know, how many other people have been drummed out for voicing dissenting views is hard to know. But just recently, you know, ETL Dror, Dr. ETL Dror, who's the nation's or world's really leading expert in cognitive bias as it relates to forensics, wrote a co- uh, an article on forensic pathology that was co-authored by three members of the National Association of Medical Examiners that suggested that they were humans and that their brains were like everybody else's and that they were influenced by contextual information that was irrelevant to their casework. Cognitive bias, right? And they were all, you know, they, they tried to go after Dr. Dror at his academic institution. Ethics complaints were filed by other name members against them because they signed on to this paper that, um, that they didn't like. You know, I mean, that was critical of their field. You know, I mean, so it's very, very frustrating because, you know, the stakes are incredibly high. We're talking about life and liberty. And, you know, the circling of the wagons that you point out, you know, can cost people their lives. Well, this seems like a good time to bring up Michael West uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, a certain interesting way of circling the wagons uh, or throwing someone under the bus, I guess, and eventually throwing them under the bus. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the episode we did with Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington on specifically Stephen Hayne and Michael West. But you, one of your cases you write about, dealt with this character. I was very excited to read that very long transcript uh, <laughs> between in the deposition, just he seems uh, a character uh, to say the least. Um, but who, who is Michael West and how does he fit into one of your stories? So uh, Michael West was um, and is, you know, probably the most notorious of the f- forensic odontologists as they like to call themselves when they're in court, which is just a fancy word for a forensic dentist. Um, 
is a dentist from Mississippi whose partner in uh, junk science was uh, a pathologist named Stephen Hain. And, um, you know, when I had got to the Innocence Project, I had never had a bite mark case, you know, I mean, despite, you know, 15 years of, of you know, working in criminal courts. I had plenty of uh, hair microscopy and firearms and all kinds of other stuff, but I never had a bite mark case. And, you know, when I had gotten here, he had already been basically discredited. You know, I mean, there were LeVon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer cases that are included in, in Radley Balco and, and um, Tucker Carrington's book. And, um, you know, when we started focusing on bite marks and, you know, and that was primarily my role was going to be litigating a lot of these cases, it felt inevitable that I was going to have a confrontation with Michael West. It felt, you know, like, you know, Luke confronting Vader. Eventually that was going to have to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and so... You know, Tucker Carrington and Vanessa Potkin and Peter Neufeld um, had already been litigating the Eddie Lee Howard case when I um, joined the Innocence Project, but they didn't, the DNA was not sufficient to exonerate Eddie Lee Howard, and we were going to have to litigate it like a straight up junk science case. And so we decided that um, in advance of this evidentiary hearing that we were going to have around the scientific validity or lack thereof of bite mark evidence that had been used to convict Eddie Lee Howard and send him to death row in Mississippi. Which is, which is particularly crazy bite mark evidence. I mean, even as bite mark evidence goes, it just doesn't even pass the, the presumptive possibility test, it seems like. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, what happened with, uh, with, Eddie Lee Howard's case was that this woman, this elderly woman named Georgia Kemp, would been murdered and been possibly raped in her house. And then the perpetrator apparently attempted to burn down the house to hide his or her tracks. And the phone was cut. Um, there were no fingerprints. There was no evidence of any kind to speak of. There were no eyewitnesses. There were no motives. There was nothing missing from the house. It was just this terrible crime had happened, right? And so they took Miss Kemp's body away from the scene. Um, Dr. Stephen Hain autopsied that first he documents the entire body, right? Takes photographs of the front and the back, and also does a pencil diagram of every injury that he observes, right? So there's nothing that's indicated to be a bite mark. There's nothing that looks like a bite mark. There's no suggestion of a bite mark, nothing. It's she's been stabbed twice. That's the manner of death. There are details about it. Then the autopsy um, goes forward. All of her internal organs are removed, including her brain. There is the remains are not put back together. They're not embalmed. They are simply put in a box and buried in the ground. And that was the end of it. But what happens is they don't have any suspects. They don't have any evidence. And so they just do a dragnet, familiar story, particularly in the Deep South, of and picking up black men with criminal records. And Eddie Lee, in the neighborhood, and A. Lee Howard fit that bill, and they decided he was good for it. They had almost no evidence. You know, I mean, what I say almost, there was like this vaguely incriminating statement, but also statements saying that it was six people had done this and that they should continue this investigation. It was clearly had no information about it. And so, what they decided in that moment, right, two things at the same time, which kind of tell you all you need to know about the case is that they decided to take Eddie Lee Howard to the dentist to get a mold of his teeth taken, and they decided that they were going to disinter Georgia Kemp's remains and look for a bite mark because Stephen Hain decided that there was some indication that there may have been a pattern injury that he never noticed, that he never documented, whatever. And so they decide to call the deadly Dr. West, the notorious Dr. West, who has this UV light technique and is what he calls the West phenomenon. Yeah, he's like a rain man for finding bite marks. Right. No one else seemed to be able to do it before. Right. And this is, you know, West is, is the, the purest manifestation of this junk. But, you know, these, these bite mark cases appear where the dentists are like cancer clusters, right? I mean, it's like, oh, suddenly we're having a bunch of bite marks in Virginia. Oh, well, there's a new forensic dentist there who's identifying them. And so what they did is like West gets his equipment. Allegedly, the body is disinterred and brought to the uh, Pearl, Mississippi, into the morgue there where they did all of their dark arts. And Hain disappears in the record. 
Michael West comes in. He decides that uh, after five hours of examining these remains, and I say allegedly because there are no pictures, no documentation of any of this alleged examination at all, he claims that he found a bite mark on the victim's breast. Now, I remind you that the, the rib cage should be entirely removed, right? All the organs underneath that breast, right? And on the neck, right? And the neck had been dissected at autopsy and went on her arm. And so that was the evidence that put Eddie Lee Howard on death row. And that was all the evidence that they had that put him on death row. And so we're heading towards this evidentiary hearing and decided that I'm going to do the deposition and I'm going to cross-examine Michael West. And Tucker actually came with me, you know, to, to this. He had, he'd had previous experience with him, but I was going to do the questioning. And I was terrified. I was really terrified because this guy, you know, had, I knew they was capable of saying anything. I had read tens of thousands of felt like of pages of transcripts of his. And what was, you know, and he's not stupid either. He's quick and, and he knows what he's talking about. He's just willing to, he's a nihilist and willing to say whatever. And, you know, we're talking about a death penalty case, you know, and so, you know, the experience uh, that I had, you know, which I write about and which was in the Washington Post at one point, you know, I mean, and the transcript you, you apparently read, it was the, the singular experience of my legal career, really, in many ways, is that it was such like a surreal experience. That's an overused word, but, you know, that's the right word for here, you know, and I've never been called an asswipe under oath, you know, or, you know, Mr. Asswipe, you know, I mean, and then, you know, he had, you know, the, the court reporter was putting in like almost like stage directions. He was so offended by him, like, and noting that he had belched like at one point, you know, I mean, and it was just, you know, and, and, you know, I had to treat it like a regular case initially, right? So we're going to lay initially, and I tried to like kind of lay out the strategy that I was trying to deploy when I went into this for the readers so they have an understanding of like what a lawyer is trying to accomplish in something like this. So I was trying to initially, so I didn't have to confront him with fraud, to just talk about bite mark evidence being junk science, that, hey, we all used to believe this, now we don't. You've had your own wrongful convictions, you know what I mean? Like, let's just call this junk science. Let's get A. Lee Howard off death row and call it a day. We don't have to get into your incredible record. But he wouldn't confirm what he had said before so we have to go down this path with him. And now we're just getting into the dark underbelly of that lifetime of work that he's, you know, applied in primarily in Mississippi and elsewhere in the Southwest, you know, and like when I finally get down to like accusing him of fraud to the brass tacks where we'd have this insane deposition is a, I'm not the one named Fabricant. You are. <laughs> I was just like, where does he come up with that? Right, it was just like I, I've, I've been teased about that as the last name before, but it, it was a that it felt like the only prep that he had done is that he was going to get that zinger in, you know. What I mean, and and he was very pleased with himself after that, you know. And then uh, you know, but it was you know the the whole time in my mind it was like this is this is a death penalty case, right? You know, we're not arguing over you know a slip and fall, you know. What I mean, and that well, then well, he called you a sociopath, which is interesting because I'm pretty sure Tucker told me that. I asked him, I was like, well, what, what do you think is this guy's issue? I think he said that he might be a sociopath or something. I don't want to put words in Tucker's mouth, but the actual, but he, I mean, or, and this gets to this, like the question of how the motivations here are, are they earnest? Maybe Michael West is, is different and he is a, a character and, and worse seemingly, but for these forensic odontologists, like, they really do believe it, right? That they're performing a public service for the most part. I, I, I don't know about Michael West, but you know, or you have to tell yourself a story that you didn't convict a wrong, wrongfully convict a person. I think to maintain your, you know, sense of sanity, if you aren't a sociopath. Um, but like, but it's interesting. He's calling you a sociopath for trying to, you know, revisit a conviction, a conviction based on this insane way of finding a bite mark. But I mean, th there's more earnestness going on here in general, I think in the professions, correct? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, with notable exceptions, Michael West being one of them is the, um, is that I think that most, um, forensic experts, you know, believe, you know, their own testimony and, and believe in what their mentors taught them and believe that, you know, I have an agenda, you know, that, that somehow is contrary to real science or, you know, is trying to be subversive, you know I mean? And just to be clear, there is no organization 
in the criminal legal system that relies on valid and reliable science more than the Innocence Project. It's the basis of everything that we do. And I don't advance any arguments that are contrary to the science because I'm not a public defender anymore. I don't take every client that comes in the front door. We have a goal, and that's to bring scientific integrity to the criminal legal system. That's the goal. So I'm not advancing junk science arguments. So the practitioners, you know, are civic-minded primarily and, and are not trying to frame, you know, innocent people for crimes they didn't commit. And I, you know, and, and it's very, very hard to really get your mind around this notion of that, you know, thick textbooks and years and years of acceptance in criminal courts and years and years of lectures and so-called peer review publications that are published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, that all that is wrong, right? Is that just because you've stacked up enough papers and it's been around long enough that somehow that's going to translate to scientific validity. And, you know, as my father always likes to say is that, you know, nobody wants to live an ignoble life. And, you know, then I remember somebody like uh, talking to him about that, that the emphasis was probably on the wrong word is so nobody wants to live an ignoble life, right? And it's kind of what you're talking about is that people, you know, tell themselves a story or they're told that story and they adopt that. And given the stakes that we've talked about, very, very hard to, you know, back up, you know, backtrack from all of that. And that's why I have such great respect for science forensic experts that have accepted the data that have taken a hard look in the mirror and taken a hard look at our clients cases and renounced the field and have been willing to come into court and speak truth and say that i used to believe this i was wrong here's what the data say is that we have to have at the very least a new trial because these are really really tough convictions Convictions like that I've written about, particularly Stephen Cheney's and Eddie Lee Howard's, is that we don't have DNA evidence. We don't have this truth serum. And we have to be willing to go back and correct the record. And we have to be willing to offer and grant new trials so we can have a trial that's not tainted by subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. That's never a fair trial. And no conviction resting on junk science is reliable. Every conviction is inherently unreliable. Why is there such resistance that you encounter from prosecutors? Although there are some uh, some good ones in your book, but but uh, Mark Godsey, who was on the show a few months ago for his book Blind on Justice, like talks a lot about the pro- prosecutor mentality, and also by judges too, because they don't seem to. There's a really big faith in the sort of amazingness of the American criminal justice system that is a little bit shocking for for anyone who's ever been in one of these courtrooms, like a county courtroom in Mississippi, uh, that the justice had been done. But other than that, why why is there such resistance on so many people to try and figure out who is wrongfully convicted? You know, the status quo is very, very difficult to disrupt. You know what I mean? And what you have in a typical case, right, is that Judges, prosecutors, few people are in stakeholders within the legal system are thinking systemically. They're thinking about the individual case in front of them. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how any criminal defendant has two strikes against them the minute they walk into court. And to be clear, you know, is that most people that are indicted for crimes and go to trial are guilty, right? At least guilty of some of the factual allegations. Often they're overcharged that have been leveled against them. You know, imagine that we lived in a society where that wasn't the case, right? You know, so which... And also many murders are kind of easy to solve because it's like, find the ex-boyfriend. Or, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're rarely anonymous except for connect with the drug war. But yeah, you go find the ex-boyfriend and, and there you go. Right, and that because those narratives are so common, it's why a lot of ex-boyfriends are wrongfully convicted, right? Because people believe that's the right guy. And that's why we have to be so careful about the type of evidence that we use against the boyfriend, right? Because, you know, yeah, often that's the case, but sometimes it's not, right? And the uh, and so what you have in an individual criminal case is like the original bite mark case, is that what you have is a defendant that is viewed by the court and the prosecutor as guilty. And the judge is very, very reluctant to take a tool away from the prosecutor that will be useful in convicting a guilty defendant. And they aren't relying on scientific literature when they're making these decisions. What they're relying on is case law. And case law doesn't change. You know, not really. You know, I mean, unless you're in the Supreme Court where star decisis doesn't matter anymore. But the, uh, but you have, you know, 
this settled law and you can never have settled science. That's the antithesis of science, right? And so you have this inherent tension in the use of scientific evidence in criminal trials. And what it leads to is that once you get a case, you know, a particular technique in the court and the courts aren't going to be, you know, relying on anything other than precedent, then you have the perpetuation of junk science that becomes almost impossible to take out. You know, and, and you know, you look at the case of Charles McCrory in Alabama. He was a client of mine and, and the Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, my colleague Mark Lawton Brown and I are working on this case. And he is in my view, and I think any fair look at the facts of that case is that he's innocent and primary, you know, entirely convicted on bite mark evidence. And we lost the evidentiary hearing after he was offered a plea to go home that day after 37 years in prison. And the bite mark evidence had been recanted. And what the judge said in that case was going back all the way to the reasoning of Walter Mark's case that we talked about in the beginning was that the recantation essentially didn't matter because jurors could see with their own eyes, you know, whether or not this was a match. You know what I mean? So Charles McCory is still in prison in Alabama serving a life sentence for a crime he didn't commit. You do a good job of connecting in the book the mass incarceration problem that this country suffers through, which of course has many, many components to it. Um, but this is an interesting a aspect of it, of course, the race aspect to it can't be ignored in terms of what color these people quite often are and what part of the country they are often being uh, persecuted in. Uh, but in the sort of the bigger rot of the criminal justice system, and I, for listeners uh, who listened to old episodes too or episodes of my colleague Clark Neely, like the, the rot is profoundly huge. And this is just one example of a thing that we thought worked and really doesn't work. But like, how does it all connect to the, the, the just the general issues of mass incarceration? Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up, Trevor. Uh, you know, because, you know, I don't think anybody, you know, sh you know, that, you know, has like, uh, has studied the criminal legal system and, and has an understanding of it would point to, wrongful convictions or junk science is the primary problem. What we have is structural racism and mass incarceration. That That is, you know, what is going on. And that's why our criminal legal system exists, is to, for social control, black and brown people primarily, and certainly all poor people. The, it's a, um, and so what we have with junk science is the symptom of the larger disease, you know, I mean, and it's one of the tools that is useful in maintaining the status quo. And, you know, that's true, you know, and then we talk about, you know, some of the more volume, you know, stuff that we've talked about with the drug war as it relates to and some of the presumptive drug tests and all the rest, so you can see how important it is in propping up the status quo. And then the, some of the worst forms of junk science that I encounter in my working life is in death cases paradoxically i you know i you know before i was only working in new york you know and we didn't we don't have the death penalty here and i would have assumed the opposite right that you know it was that we would be particularly careful with the evidence that we're using in capital uh, prosecutions but it's exactly the opposite the worst stuff that i've seen and and i have a couple of theories as to why that is and one of them is is that, and this kind of underlies so much of our culture and certainly the criminal legal system, is like our desire to punish. And we see this in, you know, and we see it in wrongful conviction cases too, is because so many of our cases involve vulnerable victims, high profile cases, vulnerable victims, right? It's like an elderly white woman, that A. Lee Howard, and it's a black man that's accused of violating a white woman, you know, which is a trope that's, you know, wrongfully convicted and killed black men for 400 years in this country, right? So, it's one of the tools that facilitates that same old trope. And, you know, it's, um, you know, so getting at the root of it and disrupting the status quo would be us to take a real hard look at the quality of evidence that we're using to prosecute and incarcerate poor people primarily in this country. And this is why I make this point in the book about poor people science, right? Is that, you know, when I was kind of unraveling, you know, what happened, you know, for, you know, and how is it that the criminal justice system ended up with, you know, um, all of these speculative techniques being used the way that they are. And why aren't we really getting the same kind of problem in civil litigation? And so, you know, I, 
you know, the term junk science itself was popularized by, uh, in a book um, in the 90s by a guy named Peter Huber, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, right? And what was happening in the 90s is that the last two decades, corporations have been getting their pants suit off of them. And a lot of junk science being used in product liability cases and tort, uh, mass tort litigation and toxic tort litigation. And corporations were getting tired of it. So they had, you know, advocates like Peter Huber were starting to use the term junk science and that it was being used in criminal courts. And they teed up the case of, you know, Daubert versus Merrill Pharmaceuticals in the United States Supreme Court. And just as an aside, I know people who know the Dauberts, and that's apparently how they pronounce their name. It looks like it should be Dober. The, uh, so that's the, the high court. And what they asked that court to do was that we can't defer to the so-called relevant scientific community anymore. That hasn't worked. We're getting all this junk science in our cases. And, you know, and, and Peter Huber's book, Galileo's Revenge, was cited, you know, I mean, in many briefs that were winding that, that case up to the, the court. And so they did, they, they won. They flipped this evidentiary standard back to the judges and say, you judges are going to, now going to have to eat your broccoli and that you're going to have to apply basic scientific principles to your consideration as to whether or not you're going to admit this evidence. And a study that was done about 10 years after this decision came out demonstrated that my boss, Peter Neufeld, co-founder of the Innocence Project, did it. And what it showed was that on the civil side, the decision worked. They were starting to exclude junk science in ways that they had never done before and that you we were getting you know, more scientific integrity in civil cases. And to be clear, some of those cases were righteous litigation. You know, I'm not saying it was all junk science. You know, I'm glad four pintos aren't with us anymore. But we go forward, you know, I mean, and you look at the criminal side, nothing had changed. Zero. And that prosecutors were successful in getting everything that they'd proffered. And that defense attorneys were almost never, not almost, never successful. Literally never. And fast forward to 2018, I did a study with Professor Brandon Garrett at Duke Law School, a follow-up study. It showed that nothing had changed despite the fact that we know today that nearly half of all DNA exonerations, those cases, the misapplication of forensic sciences was a contributing factor in nearly half. And still none of this had changed. So we get poor people science because we don't care about the science that we use to incarcerate and kill poor people in this country. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.